Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Good morning. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Wonderful to be here. Wonderful to have you along. Got a great show coming up. We've got Helen Horton from the New Conservative Party. I'm very much looking forward to interviewing her and finding out what the New Conservative Party is about and what it's new from. And also, here's a tricky thing. You want to be polite. You want to be respectful. Uh, You're a teacher in the classroom. And a little girl or young girl says, from now on, I don't want to be called Sue. I want to be called Sam because I'm a boy. And your parent says, yeah, that's okay. Sue's now Sam. And the headmaster says, well, we're an inclusive school. How do you handle that? It's difficult, right? Because it goes against everything that you believe in. Like, girls can't become boys, but here you are. Hi, Sam. Yes, I know you're a boy. No, you're a girl. We're going to be talking to Jonathan Ayling from the Free Speech Union about uh, the work that the Free Speech Union has been doing uh, with the Teachers' Council about how this can be handled better for teachers and for schools because it's a vexed one, and however you look at it, it needs to be resolved. I'm going to be very excited to see what Jonathan's come up with. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation, and I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way, because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as i've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And um, continuing my series, I feel so blessed because I have an opportunity on RCR to interview the, what do you call them, the third parties, the minor parties, the smaller parties, the would-be, could-be parties, the parties that we don't sort of notice. 
And I have this great opportunity to give them our platform and interview them because I love them all. Because I guess I know what it feels like to be standing for Parliament as an outsider. It is so tough, so hard, so harsh, and everything is bent against a new party. Everything is in the favour of the existing old legacy parties. And when you talk to the smaller parties, they're citizens, not politicians. And I always feel we want citizens in our parliament, not politicians. And so it's a great pleasure that I have on the show Helen Horton from the New Conservative Party. Good morning, Helen. Good morning, Rodney. It's really good to be here. And first, I just want to thank you for providing this platform for, like you said, the citizens, those of us who are just general Kiwis who have are fed up with what's going on in Parliament and want to stand up for those the part of the uh, New Zealand who are not represented. And I don't know, I haven't got the exact figures, but I'm pretty sure it's close to 30% of New Zealanders are not represented in Parliament. Would you know oh, those for figures? Sure. For mm. sure. No, um, well, count me in. Um, we just, as just before we came on air, we established a wee connection that you, mm-hmm. I went to Rangura High School we won't say the years, will we? Oh, I went. I started in 1970, and you started at Rangura High School in 1979. 79, right? I, yeah, those years. It's kind of scary when you think about those years, isn't it, really? <laughs> it makes us feel ancient, although, you know, we're not, Rodney. No. <laughs> um, who was headmaster when you were there? Oh, look, um, I have to be honest with you, I was a little bit messed up and a bit of a rebel at high school, and I didn't pay too much attention to authority figures, so I was one of those students who had to scrub graffiti off the um, wall. Do you remember the big walls that they had there? Yes. Gosh, um, yeah, look, it was a male. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, we had Tom Tom Penny. And oh, Gus Conway it? was a deputy, but not to worry. Um, yeah. we never so had I, I'll explain I, why I, shortly. I know. We yeah. never had graffiti. Oh, so that happened yeah. when I came on board then? No, oh. it happened before you came on board. No, there was <laughs> never graffiti. I can remember getting caned Ooh. for riding my bike uh, back after going home for lunch and my socks slipping down below my knee and I got caned <gasps> by the deputy um, principal for my socks down. Oh, my gosh. That we is would have, it was fantastic. No, I, 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 I look, I think it's fantastic. I can remember the girls kneeling down and having their skirts um, measured above wow. their knee. And I can remember inspection where if there was one hair of your head sitting on your ears, um, I don't know what happened. You had to get it cut. I, it would never happen. It was short back and sides. You had to wear a cap. Do you know what? I look back on that and I say they were absolutely correct. I, it was correct that I got the cane for having my socks come down because they taught standards, they taught respect, they taught discipline. And um, to be honest, getting the cane never, I got it quite a few times. It, we all did. Never particularly bothered me. Most of the time I got it, it was for things I hadn't done. Um, because if I was going to do something naughty, I'd figure out how to get away with it sort of thing. 
But you know, you you. I mean, I'm sounding like an old man, aren't I? But we're talking to a new Conservative Party leader, so it's okay. But <laughs> we're not we're not for corporal punishment. Probably. No, no, no. But you know what I mean. There was respect. Yes. There was standards. You couldn't turn up to school in your pajamas, <laughs> right? Like you pick couldn't. and save. Yeah. No, you couldn't. You yeah. couldn't. You you actually had to dress up. And we were uniform and we were properly. And out of that, you know, you got some pride and respect. And you look at it now and the kids, the teachers, the teachers that you see in school wouldn't be allowed into a school. We never had a teacher without a tie. Mm. Um, anyway, that's me going back. So we knew, gosh, the thought of graffiti. I just can't imagine graffiti. Oh, oh Rodney, I have to share one more thing before we move on from the Rangura. So I suppose then when I came on board, you wouldn't have been with the group of students hanging around the railway tracks. So we used to sneak down to the railway tracks and have a smoke in the um, uh, behind the railway tracks. So you wouldn't have been around then. Oh, look, Do you remember? I, I can <laughs> remember people sneaking down to the railway tracks for more than a smoke. <laughs> but, um, oh, dear, no. I oh. was never one of those, right, because I oh. was – I was too scared to be naughty. Okay. All right. Actually, you're right. I was too scared to be naughty as well, but I got to a point where, um, yeah, look, look, I'll just share a wee bit of why I'm even here now. So tiny, brief bit of that background, because now that you're talking about Rangier High School. So I left school at 14 years old. So I was at Rangier High for a year and a half. Uh, I think as soon as I turned 14, I started to rebel from a very dysfunctional childhood. And so as well as leaving the school, I was a runaway living on the streets. I got involved. So tell, in me, tell me what a dysfunctional family looks like that you were in. Oh, single mother, um, a lot of alcohol, a lot of um, the caning, as you referred to for school, um, you know, it's a different level of kind of beatings that I got at home. It wasn't for things like what you were talking about, having standards. It was, yeah, just a, quite a messy childhood. I won't go too much into Did that. Did you have but siblings? Like, uh, yes, one from uh, one of each. So I had an older brother and a younger sister from a different father. The sister was a different, yeah. So there wasn't a lot of... Um, so let's yeah, just say... Your mother wasn't um, what one would hope for in a mum. Um, no, afraid not. So Still look, let's not I won't, dwell on it. Yeah, I won't dwell on that. But I will say that yeah, I was a runaway, so I lived on the streets. I got involved in crime. So when alcohol, you say you ran drugs. away, you ran you ran away from home at fourteen. Yeah, look, I, I hitchhiked from Rangura, you know Rangura, so I used to hitchhike from Rangura into the city, and then I started hanging around the street, um, you know, what was it, Christchurch Square, where the doghouse was? Do you remember yes. the doghouse? Yes. Yep. So I was one of those kids that were in there, and um, that was that became my lifestyle for quite some time. I um, obviously got involved with a lot of drugs and crime and uh, alcohol at 14 years old. Mm. 
It took, I tell you what, Rodney, it took almost two decades to create a better life for myself and my sons after a few, you know, just navigating through all of the um, interesting journey after a failed marriage as well, which included several trips to women's refuge later on in life. I then went on in my early 30s to put myself through teacher's college, incredibly enough, even though I had never even written an essay before because of that limited and interrupted school years. So I, you can understand why I speak a lot about family. So family is a passion of mine as well as education and protecting children. For the past 22 years, Rodney, Christchurch East has been my home. It's where I found my feet and my life changed for the better. Okay, I started off here, though, in a state house with my two-year-old and four-and-a-half-year-old sons. Christchurch East, on my own. Yep. And when you were 14, why did you take drugs and drink alcohol? I was on the streets, uh, Rodney. I had no home, no family, no connections. And my family became the other dysfunctional young people around the streets. And actually a lot of them were older. They, I probably was the youngest at that time. So a lot of them were the older people that were... Um, and where did you sleep? Oh, you're going to have to read my book one day, Rodney, when I get the I book will, published. but I haven't got time right now. Okay, so so my very first night out, I slept in the toilets. And do you, oh, you know Rangira, obviously, Victoria Park toilets? Yes. I, I actually slept there with my feet barred up against the door, so afraid that somebody would um, get in, but I was more afraid of being at home. So that's, that's how I started off my teenage years. And you know what? There was, I did find one night, one of the churches there, they had a, um, the door was unlocked. And so I slept in there and it was great. The problem was, you know, when you're 14 and you're dysfunctional because you've got all this baggage of what your childhood was about, I started taking some other people along to the church with me. And I kind of laugh when I talk to God because, you know, sometimes I talk to God, I don't know about you, but, you know, I kind of laugh with them now because I stole things from that church when I was 14 years old. Shocking mm. <laughs> that I actually stole from a church where, you know, here I was thinking um, it was a place to sleep, a place of refuge, but I took along some other young people one night and we stole some things, you know, as you do when you're young and silly. Um, but, you know, I have a good old laugh with God about that, and so I know he forgives me. Was there uh, anyone yeah. looking looking for you when you're out on the streets at 14? I mean, it's crazy. You would think so. But no, I managed to avoid, I kind of slipped under the cracks. I think because I was so, um, well, not connected to family and there wasn't any protections for me, that there hadn't been an interest in my life. And so I just became a nobody. I was a nobody at that point. At 14, I was, I was nothing. I actually, you know, a few years later even I, I actually believed that I just belonged in the gutter and that I was worthless I had been told that for much of my childhood and uh, so yeah I was very dysfunctional Rodney I had no so self-esteem school ended at 14 school ended at 14 a home ended at 14 I was uh, homeless I was what you could really call homeless um, hiding I went into hiding. I The first things to, to survive, I was stealing milk bottle money when they actually used to put money in milk bottles. Yes. <laughs> Honestly. And, yeah, I got involved in petty crime, shoplifting, 
I won't talk about too much of my crime because I don't want the police to, you know, come knocking on my door. And <laughs> I do have a small criminal record from the past. Yeah, just mm. petty stuff mainly. And you did drugs? <laughs> I did drugs. I can't believe what? I'm talking about this on air, but, hey, I own my past. What sort of drugs? Uh, so it started off with weed, you know, the cannabis, and a lot of that, a lot of it. Then I had um, alcohol was my main thing. Though. I used to, I drank a lot, drank a lot. And then I moved into the New City Hotel when I was 16 years old. And I was So just tell me teenage. you were drinking yourself to oblivion <laughs> to stop the pain or just um, it, fun Yeah, or look, it, look it, wasn't, it wasn't that so much at 14. Ugh. We started drinking at 14 years old in Victoria Park in Rangura with a few young people. We'd get the older ones to go and buy us wine from the bottle store. And then we'd go and drink the cheap Chardonnay, I think it was, if I remember rightly. Chardon, Chardon, Chardonnay, you might recall that. As, um, yeah, we'd drink in the park. That was my early days. And then it got to top shelf. By the time I was 16, I was uh, in New City Hotel. I was living there. And I was drinking vodka. At, um, I'd leave the bar at 3 a.m. in the morning, take my jug of vodka to, up to my room. So I was a teenage alcoholic, Rodney. I don't drink now. I haven't drunk for, oh, probably 15 years, getting close to 20 years probably. I don't drink. No. Yeah. Mm. Um, and you're 16. How come you found yourself, well, I don't know this hotel. What was this hotel? Was it a what's oh, a, um, a DOS house or something? Yeah, pretty much. So I slept, well, I had a room upstairs and, you know, it was a place where all the strippers hung out. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was an interesting, interesting few months of my life there. Uh, and then I went, oh, I, sorry, I met my my to-be husband there actually at the same time. And so he he also had a pretty dysfunctional life and obviously we connected. And by the time we were um, 17, 18, we were living together. Mm, so there you go. So, yes, I had quite a messed up beginning. And, you know, with my backstory, I know all the issues that face our communities because I've lived experience of dysfunction. And my journey and my personal growth has been transformational, to say the least, especially my spiritual journey, Rodney. I want to hear now about the transformation. You're married, you know, or you're living with someone, you've got two sons, that'll turn to custard. That turned right. to custard, yeah, because and we were both, you know, from dysfunction, yeah. Yeah. And then coming out of it, what happened? Oh, coming out of it, that was another horrific part of my life. So I was, what were we, 29, no, 30? Oh, no, gosh, early 30s. I, I spent a few trips in Women's Refuge to actually come out of that. And then I finally made This is the, your marriage you're coming yes, out of? Yes, yes, that was my marriage. Um, I packed up the house one sometime when he was out drinking and took my young boys because I didn't want them to grow up with the same kind of fears that I had grown up with, basically. Um, yep, so I've done the woman's refuge, been through all of that drama, and like I said, 22 years, Christchurch East has been my home since the woman's refuge and changed my life for the better. Incredibly. Oh, how? Did you say how? Mm. 
What happened? I mean, you're in the woman's refuge, you're an alcoholic, you've got two young boys, you've got no money, no future. Um, by your own account, you, you feel a loser. Everyone's looking at you as a loser. You're relying on charity at the woman's refuge, mm. uh, even to keep yourself physically safe, uh, let alone mm. materially provided for. And now look at you, standing for high office as a party leader, what happened to get you from an alcoholic mother, solo mother, at the woman's refuge? What got you out of that? Okay, so so the teenage alcoholic was, um, I, I slowly started removing myself from alcohol before I had my sons, before I gave birth to my first son, 29 years old. I had slowed down on my drinking because uh, I lived with my husband, although we weren't married all the time, for 16 years, and that was pretty tumultuous with a lot of alcohol abuse and all that comes with that, you know, Jake the Must type of style of once for warrior living. Now, I so I slowly started removing myself or alcohol from my life because of what I was dealing with my, with my ex-husband, and by the time I had my sons, I wasn't really drinking much at all, to be honest. Um, however... It wasn't until, you know, they were a couple of years old by the time I'd stopped completely. I decided that was it. I wanted a better life for my sons and to change the cycle for them. So I did everything I could to improve my life. And that was my main drive. It was my sons were my drive for everything. So I couldn't even escape my marriage for myself all the times I went to refuge because, like I said, I had no self-worth. So to me, it wasn't. For me, it was once I saw what could my sons could have gone through that I decided that's it, I'm out. I need to keep them safe, remove them from this, from this environment. And then I spent years of their childhood just protecting them, but I kind of overprotected them. And as you can imagine why, and we were quite isolated. So I didn't let anyone in around me and completely isolated myself and them from anything, any, you know, past family or any of that. So, yeah, it was it was tough going, tough, uh, you know, you survive as a solo parent. Well, I don't call myself a solo parent because I, I don't like that term. And I was married when I had my children. And so I prefer to use a single parent. So I raised them as a single parent. And it's a real struggle, you know, because you're you're providing everything. You're providing, you know, the financial toll. You are surviving week by week, and you know, one day, you know, you'll you'll see it in the book. But I feel for my oldest son because he remembers when I used to take his stuff to the pawn shop. And I know that sounds shocking, but like I would, I ensured that I made sure that they had things that I didn't have. So they had all the technology. But then there were moments where a couple of times when I'd, you know, go down and pawn it, I'd get it back. But that's how how we had to survive. You know, it was tough going, really hard. So I really do feel for single parents out there. It's um, and you don't go into you don't go into ch uh, having children thinking that you're going to become a single parent. You want the best. I would say the majority of single parents out there wanted the best for their families, and they didn't have children imagining that they were going to end up doing it on their own. Yeah. I think most parents want the best for their children. So that's a, will it, a little bit. And I wasn't planning on telling you all that, but everyone's going to hear about that now. And that's okay because I own my I own my background because it's 
that that my experiences that undoubtedly give me a unique perspective how and insight. Boys, how old are your boys now? Oh, 24 and 27. My goodness. They're amazing, my sons. My sons are awesome. But I better not talk too much about them because they'll grow up. They'll tell they me grow. off. But I've got to say they're awesome. They're incredible. They're hard workers. They've got an incredible work ethic, and I'm really proud of both of them. Mm. Do they live with you? Oh, uh, so my oldest, eldest, he and I built a home about five years ago, but he's now living in Australia. My youngest has travelled Europe twice, but since COVID he came back came back to New Zealand, was flatting for a short time. At the moment, he's doing a short stint back at home, as many of nice. our young people are. <laughs> it's quite nice when they do come back home, I've got to say. I love they having them make around. They must make you very proud. Oh, I am super proud of them. Uh, you know, we're, we're not perfect. I mean, gosh, my um, youngest, he, you know, reminds me of some of the not-so-great things of my parenting. <laughs> Which is, well, know. we all have that as parents, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. um, when you look back on your childhood and early years and tough years, do you look back on it resentfully? Oh, I, you know, Rodney... Years ago, I think I did. I did years ago because I thought I was ripped off. You know, I thought I felt really ripped off as a child. My childhood was taken from me. I didn't have one. You know, if you, when you read my book in years to come and see what I've experienced and what I had to do to survive, it was a shocker. And I didn't have a childhood. And so, you know, I didn't have a voice. I couldn't speak. Um, I was beaten. So I was, I was afraid. And then I lived a very fearful life for a long, long, long time, even through my marriage. And so um, I did feel resentful that I missed out on so much, but I know that that's made me who I am today and why I can stand now in politics and help others. So that's why I'm dedicated to making a positive impact and involve myself in politics where decisions can make or break society and like I've, what I've explained to you, you know, that journey has given me a unique perspective into the issues that our society face. Um, and, and who else would be best to actually speak into these things in Parliament, um, especially when it comes to the broken families that we have that are rife in New Zealand and the abuse of substance abuse. Yeah. I'm Look, looking, uh, so, I'm, I'm, so I'm you get you now. Right? And the <laughs> yeah. listeners can't see you, but they can hear you. And what I'm looking at is a wonderfully confident woman who I would have said was much younger than you are. <laughs> Good one. Who speaks extremely well and has got a good grip on the world and articulate. So I'm looking at an intelligent, confident woman. I can't believe that you got there given your background, and it puzzles me. It just puzzles me. Was it always in you? Like, did someone rescue you? Um, did you rescue yourself? Was there a moment? Did you find God? 
you are amazing to be standing up as a leader of a political party standing for parliament, but not just doing so. I mean, I have interviewed MPs who can't hardly talk, right? But you clearly can. You've clearly thought things. Where did all that come from? Oh, uh, hey, it was a lot. It was a journey. So I was dysfunctional for a long time in my adult life to get through all of that, Rodney. And after the marriage finished and I went into Women's Refuge, you know, I, I was in hiding for a few years. So like I said, I lived in fear. And uh, for, for those people who are out there listening, some of them know what that's like when you leave a relationship where you actually think that you're going to be uh, found and then murdered. You know, it's a pretty fearful time. So, yeah, there was a, a lot to get through. And I used to, be, I just believed that I was quite strong. I actually believed I was a strong person. And so I put myself through teaching college. Uh, I'm the founder of a charitable trust now supporting families. I've fostered high needs children and I'm halfway through a law degree. Now, all of that, I, I must say that, you know, in the early days when I, after I became a teacher, I still had a lot of self-doubt and um, that feeling of, you know, I was teaching and yet I felt like I, people knew my backstory that I, I wouldn't, you know, I didn't fit, like I felt like I didn't fit because I wasn't one of them. I wasn't, you know, well-raised and um, well-spoken. I mean, you say I'm articulate, but, you know, I, I do struggle at times because there was a lot of alcohol abuse and to retain things, I have to work extra hard. Like I said, I'm doing a, a law degree now and, oh, my gosh, it is hard work. So, you know, the alcohol really did impact my ability to retain information and, yeah, so so there's a struggle there. But we you just work away at it, Rodney. You you. You start with small steps, and I'm I'm a I'm pretty driven. I'm a strong person. I'm driven, but then look, on saying all of that, I used to think it was me, but um, I did find God. Okay, so about oh, twelve years ago, I had an encounter, and then I realised actually it wasn't just about me being strong. I could see a few things in my life that had happened where I had been protected, and yeah, look, I'll explain more about that um, another time, but I certainly have had an incredible spiritual journey and I, you know, know that I've been protected in many places and I know I have a, a story and a purpose. And I think that's highly important for everybody out there who, whatever they, whatever, wherever they are in their life, that it's important to have a purpose in life and to be connected as well. I never felt, I was never connected to any family, as you've heard, but through a church that I went to for about 10 years, I had a huge connection there and um, that that helped me. That really helped me change my life. So even though I told you I was strong and I became a teacher and all of that, there was still a lot of pain deep down that I hadn't addressed. And so, you know, you, you keep it buried and you, I had this kind of concrete wall up and um, didn't let anyone near me. I was so fiercely independent, but also untrusting of everyone. Uh, unfortunately, I, you know, like I said, I was overprotective of my sons and, and they kind of had to live through that experience of not having others around either. So they were quite isolated and, you know, that's that's got effects now, I'm sure, which is a big regret for me. However, you know, you can't change your past and, and we all make mistakes. 
So, um, yeah, it was my spiritual journey that healed me, that healed all the pain in my past because there is a lot. You can't go through that kind of stuff, Rodney, and come out <laughs> like a normal, you know, like everything's everything's great. You know, you, you bury it all and it's going to come out exploding sometime. And so I, I actually laugh about some of it now where, you know, people have said, oh, gosh, politics. And I said, yeah, but you need a bit of mongrel, right, to be involved in politics. And I've got that. Like you say, I'm articulate. And yes, I'm a teacher. Well, I've been a teacher for 16 years. I founded a charitable trust and I'm doing a law degree, but I've still got a bit of mongrel, <laughs> Rodney. And you can't get through all of that street life without having some of that still there. So I'm not you know, highly spoken all the time. And, you know, I make mistakes and sometimes I still don't like certain people. <laughs> you know, you, I mean, uh, I'm not perfect. <laughs> you are listening to Rally Check Radio. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Helen Horton, uh, the leader of the New Conservative Party, who's asking for your party vote for the New Conservatives. And what a story. Some politicians sort of talk up their story. And here we have Helen who just tells it. And I'm sitting here crying for that little 14-year-old girl all alone. I can't imagine the pain. And here you are. Tell us about the New Conservatives. Yeah, well, New Conservative. Now, that's um, I got involved with them because... They stand up for the things that I stand up for. And as you've just alluded to, you know, it's those 14-year-olds, it's those young people who also, there's many of us out there who have suffered through adverse effects of family breakdown, the alcohol abuse, a lot of things in society that we need to address as New Zealanders. We must have these conversations. And I get very fiercely uh, protective of children. You know, it, it's it's... I mean, a sizable and growing portion of New Zealanders have those traditional family values, and yet we've got no political power. So New Conservative exists to provide those people with parliamentary representation, but also for those who don't, who are not aware of um, how this dysfunction can happen. And I'll start with education because that is where my passion is for children, but also for education because, as you heard, I was robbed of that, basically. Now, New Zealand, as you know, has been spiralling downwards for a long time. In 2000, we were one of the top performers, but it's no surprise that we're underperforming now, and New Conservative will bring back those basics and put the control back into the hands of school leaders along with the parent community, Rodney, because they know what's best for their children. We want to remove the lobby groups from having access to school. So I don't know if you know about my petitions, but for over four years now, I've been asking for an investigation into the radical gender ideology that's pushed by the Ministry of Education. And it's, yeah, and it's enforced by the Teaching Council. I've petitioned the government to remove gender ideology from the sexuality guidelines, ban puberty blockers for minors, and stop the affirmative care model for minors with the gender confusion. So this is... You, you would have heard about it happening in the oh, schools, I'm, I'm sure. Up, up to my head in it with two little girls at primary school. It is disgusting. Oh, it is yeah. child abuse. Yes, so it is. 
That is, I mean, you've just heard about my abuse, so I know what affects children and, and how we need to overprotect them when they're my, young. My little girl at 11, that listeners know this, my little girl at 11, without my knowledge, had inside out, you know exactly who they are, turn up and talk to her class for two hours without any parent knowing. And my daughter came home and she said, you better sit down. Oh. And I said, oh. And she says, we've just had these trans and lesbos in. Mm. Talk to us. These are teenagers who are mixed up, mm. poor kids, uh, teaching them about how they could be a boy or a girl. Now, my older girl, Strongfoot, my next girl, if they came, she would be, she it would wreck her. She's a naive, lovely, perfect little girl. Hey, these, Rodney, it's not these, just about being these, naive, though. Kids, these people kids, are bastards. Yeah, they are. Look, like it's not just about your beautiful daughter being naive. She's a child, and, and child. they should be innocent. Should you be. know, this lobby group is one of the ones inside out that we need to remove, and that's the and one that I'm talking about. Um, government, government funds they, them. They are funding them to create sexual lessons for our children with our taxpayers' money, like you said, with parents mainly not knowing the content of what they're being taught. Um, it's horrific. I've been having a whole lot of um, parent meetings across the country, a lot around Canterbury, because we've got some groups that have been putting on meetings where I can speak at. Parents are horrified about this, and it's so good now. After four years, New Conservative have been talking about it that finally others have picked up that. You know, you've got other politicians now who are addressing it. Not enough. But, um, you know, it is being talked about now. We even had the Teaching Council CEO who had to come out because, you know, I've been pushing it. And she's tried to say that she has reached out to New Conservative to talk to us. But I've got to say, when I responded to them to try and get an interview with her, the response was, oh, well, she'll be in touch in due time. And that was months back. So don't tell me that they've reached out to speak to us. Look, I've sacrificed a teaching career to deal with this issue alone. And I don't even know whether, you know, when I got tried to, if I tried to get back into uh, the classroom, if I'd actually have a shot because now my registration has expired. And they are deregistering teachers who don't follow that party line of um, affirming gender confusion or using pronouns, as you might have heard with a teacher who was deregistered. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. Yes. The only the only adult telling the truth has been kicked out of teaching anywhere in New Zealand. Yeah, and like I said, I doubt that I will be able to get my registration back because of how I have challenged the ministry and opposed them. You know, they'll use the teaching council guidelines against me because I've spoken out uh, about the reputation of the school system. So New Conservative believes that the success of the education system depends on three things, Rodney. One is strong families. Teachers should not be social workers picking up the pieces of these broken lives. And again, you've heard my experience. So I know that when a child has trauma, they're not cognitively able to learn. And no matter how good the teacher is, without a safe, loving family environment, no child, oh, sorry, the children will fall through the cracks as I did. So that's our number one, strong families, which is why we have huge family policies. Number two, a focus on making sure every child masters the fundamental skills, reading, writing, and arithmetic. 
we have shockingly poor levels of numeracy and literacy among New Zealand school leavers. You've probably heard, I think it was 51% were only functional leaving high school, and that's just appalling. Number three, an expectation of excellence. So maths and science high school teachers recently were overwhelmingly rejected that new curriculum refresh. It's dumbing down our children. That's what they've said. You know, I mean, how, how do they go into university when they haven't even got the levels that are required when they leave high school? So just a few other things on our to-do list for education will remove left-wing ideologies from the curriculum, including critical race theory, gender theory, decolonization, and extremist climate science. Oh, my God, I love you. Thank you. There is an excessive interest in sexual matters, especially I know. the sexual activity of children. We know that um, I think it's 16 is the legal age of consent, and yet we've got children 13 at high school being taught. You'd be horrified at the explicit I, language. I know exactly the language. And, okay. Um, I, because I uh, went along to a Bob McCroskey talk here in Queenstown, and right. He had to apologise because yep. it was pornographic. But as yep. he said, this is what is in the schools to your children. By the way, I am like pretty laid back sort of person and pretty wild at language and all the rest of it. I was mortified at him presenting the curriculum. I, I was embarrassed because there were women and elderly ladies, mm. <laughs> young mothers. And I sat there embarrassed that this was even being discussed. And yet this is what is going on. Rodney... When, when I talk about these things, I also, well, actually, I say to the audience that I'm not going to apologise. So the, I sit there and I've used those terms. You know, the, I can't probably can't say it on radio. Can no. I? No. no. So, you know, I, I, okay. So I use those terms and some of the audience look horrified. Like you said, they're embarrassed. And then I say to them, hang on a minute. You're embarrassed. How do you think your 13-year-old daughter, granddaughter, you know, sons feel when they're having to sit in a classroom with a, you know, stranger like these inside-out people or whoever, talking to them about, you know, with these terms? How, you know, we've got to protect these young people. We're embarrassed as adults. What about our children? Anyway, so we're going to end the witch hunts against schools and teachers who do not follow the left-wing party line. We're going to promote alternatives to mainstream state school, including homeschool, special character schools. And we know they're out there, but we want to fund them. So give them the money, you know, that the um, mainstream school are getting. They deserve it. If that if people are homeschooling, they deserve that money if they're taking that initiative. And quite frankly, with the way school's going, I promote homeschool. We're going to remove the lobby group, like you said, inside out, which are government funded creating sex lessons. The bad news is, Rodney, we can't only just reform the Ministry of Education. We need a revolution and a complete overhaul. It's a mess. So that's the bad news. 
Now, I'll talk about economy because we're not only about education. See, this is the one thing that's different with our party and all the other tiny parties is we cover everything. We've got solid common sense policy over every area, whereas a lot of the others only have, might have one. And, you know, there's great people out there, but they're running with one policy and we cover everything. So our economy, we know that the cost of living is at the top of everyone's mind, the selection. We've got robust monetary and tax policy. So I'm just going to give you a brief summary of a few key features because I don't want an economy that we're going to hand down to our young people where they have to work 60 hours a week to survive. For those young married couples, we also want it to be possible for them when they start their family that both parents don't have to work, Rodney, and put their children into childcare if one would rather stay at home and raise their children. You know, I mean, there's research out there around how important all of this stuff is for our young people that there's a parent at home. Obviously, this depends on having a responsible government to manage the finances, though, and maintain their economic stability. And there's no surprise that inflation has been made worse by this government's reckless government spending. So new conservative favours low inflation and more stable, predictable interest rates. We call for caution in the increasing government expenditure. We oppose the um, idea of a central bank digital currency obviously because of the risks to freedoms and civil liberties that that brings. Um, I know that a lot of your audience would agree with me around that. And we're talking about an accountability for spending. So the emphasis for us is on transparency and accountability. It's crucial for you know public trust. I mean, how many of us actually trust where our money's been spent? We just heard about the millions that goes to those lobby groups. The centralisation of spending needs to be reversed, and that's what we do. We advocate for decentralisation of government spending. Um, local communities, they have a better way of understanding their specific needs. So giving them that control over spending will result in more customised and effective solutions. Um, so, look, families, I'll go to families because, we, like I said, that's one of our biggies, and um, it's a basic building block of society. It's dysfunctional. You know, I might have come from a dysfunctional family, but our society is dysfunctional right now because of the, the family um, breakdowns, you know, the lack of fathers in the home. Uh, one of our campaign actually is about restoring manliness. I don't know if you've heard that. We want to encourage manliness. We know there's great fathers and sons out there, but, you know, they can get tarred with that same brush as toxic men. We want to encourage every man to be the best that they can be. I interviewed a 15-year-old uh, months back who, who, incredibly mature 15-year-old, who is talking about this attack on their masculinity at high school even. You know, he's at a boys' school and he told me that they're allowed to wear nail polish, would you believe, but not allowed to have a facial hair. <laughs> uh, yeah, so manliness is a big thing. Big thing for us, it's huge. And we want to celebrate and safeguard both genders, promote it as equals, so that we can build a strong society, not one where we're blaming each other all the time. Uh, so we've got our main flagship policy as a family builder, as a reform of the tax system and working for families, which will give everyone a $2,500 tax cut and a further 5000 for each child. Um, we, with the taxes as well, we want to they have the income 
the tax bans should be adjusted for inflation. Uh, we've already got enough taxes. We oppose introduction of the new taxes like capital gains, uh, inheritance and wealth taxes. You're on um, Radley Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, that wonderful lady who's telling us about these wonderful policies about support for men and women, women being women, men being men, for supporting families, for having a stronger economy, is Helen Horton from the New Conservative Party. Oh, wow. She's amazing. Um, the policies are great. Tell me, um, Helen, how is it going for you? How do you find the campaigning? as leader of a small party on the outside trying to get in? Well, right at the beginning, I thanked you for having for providing this platform. Like RCR, you guys are incredible. I've been interviewed a number of times now. We are, you know, you, you can see if you watch mainstream media, which I know most probably most of your listeners can't be bothered with it because they know that, you know, it's one-sided. You know, all I'm seeing is, National and Labour. It's it's anyone would think we're still in first past the post because that's the only parties that you you know that Jenna Lynch is talking about. You know, it's like a race between the two, and never mind the other small parties. Um, you know, we we can't get we can't get airtime. As you've heard, we have so many solid policies. Well, I haven't even got to co-governance or climate change yet, but we've got all of these solid policies, and yet we're shut out of the conversation. You know, we've got people who have been on the front line of um, what's going on in the communities, but we're shut out of the conversation so that New Zealanders don't know that there's great people who can actually get into Parliament who are not career politicians, who actually want to serve, not be self-serving. Mm. Um, so, yeah, as a small party, it's a battle. We know it's a battle. It's even more so now that we have, unfortunately, a lot of others who have just sprung up, you know, just mm. before election with their own little tiny parties. It's unfortunate that they, you know, a lot of people couldn't support some of the ones that had more of a chance to get there. You know, early on in there, we got 2.7%, uh, but then uh, a number of other parties have risen up since then. And so it just splits. It, it completely shatters, you know, the chances of small I, I parties. I, yeah, it's terrible, and the media oh. are doing an appalling job. They do an appalling job at, at, at the best of times in elections, but this year is particularly bad, yeah. uh, this election. But tell me, um, I can understand why a new Conservative uh, wouldn't support the ACT Party because the ACT Party has sort of walked away from uh, Conservative and family into being what you'd call, I guess, loosely more liberal. But when mm. you look at the National Party, traditionally they have been for family. Uh, they mm -hmm. have been conservative. Mr Luxon is a Christian. Why don't you trust them to do policies of which you speak? Well, National has historically had some core uh, conservative cons you know conservative people and many many of their people have the traditional views uh, still do vote for national but we actually think that that's where the wasted voters because even the MPs and those parties with conservative views are constantly muzzled Rodney mm. 
to appeal to the increasing liberal and progressive audiences. I mean, you know, we've seen that. You've got a couple of really good MPs Simon here, Simeon Brown. So, Simon, Simon O'Connor, Simeon Brown, great yeah. people. Like when I went to Parliament and spoke um, to the first petition I did, Simeon Brown was in the um, panel panel of 10 MPs. I must say it felt like walking into the lion's den, but Simeon Brown actually spoke up for for what I was standing on, you know, but he's one, you know, there's a couple of them. And like I said, they get muzzled. And so that's your wasted vote is actually there. Mm, Good point. I'm conscious of time, um, which is a curse, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're so lovely. I tell you what I love about the new conservatives i normally couldn't vote new conservative because typically conservative parties are headed up by i'm going to sound like i'm an identity sort of politician (laughs) you're not going woke (laughs) are you going going woke no it's this you normally have a guy right (laughs) who's been successful in business He's got the wife at home and the successful kids. Mm. And it's like preaching family values. And I look at them and I know I agree with them, right? Mm. But I find them like self-satisfied. And I find them saying everyone should be more perfect like me. (laughs) And it sort of drives me a bit spastic. Right, I probably can't use that word. It drives me a bit nutty. Am I? I think I can say that because you sort of it's a it's a vibe that they give off. You know, like conservative guys, um, done all the right things, gone mm. through the right school. Here we are. I fear God, and I worked hard. I built my business up. My wife's wonderful. My kids are wonderful, and we need more wonderful people like me and her and our kids. <laughs> It's that's the vibe I get. <laughs> now I've got a new Conservative Party leader who stands up and says, I ran away from home at 14 because of the abuse. I never went to school. I grew up on the streets. I got a room with strippers and prostitutes. I was an alcoholic. I took drugs and I stole and I stole from churches. I had kids to an abusive man and had to seek refuge in a woman's refuge. It took me years and years and years to dig my way out of my start in life. And God knows how I did it. Truly God knows how I did it because he was there helping me. Mm. Now, when I hear that story, it moves me. And when I hear you speak of the need for family and manliness, and, of course, we're not talking about toxic. Mm -hmm. We're talking about men who respect and protect their woman and their children. Man, that's powerful. Oh, my goodness, that's powerful. Because you've never known it. Have you? 
No, Rodney. So thank you. Thank you for that recognition. And who would have thought that that person could now be leading not just any party, but a conservative, well, we could say male-dominated, you know, I mean, I'm the only woman on the board of seven men. And, yeah, so you can throw all that perspective out the window. Mm, around, well, I doff know, my the, cap to you. I think all those self-satisfied little journalists should stop talking and start listening, mm. start listening to you. I have to say I'm a big fan of Liz Gunn too. Um, tell me this, how do listeners find more about your party? Where can they go? What's the webpage? Um, so you've got the new conservative webpage, which, gosh, I'd have to actually look it up. That's terrible. No, they it? can Google it. I'm sure. You know, it's www.nc.org. But we also have Restoring restoring New Zealand, Restoring NZ, and that's where we talk about these um, important things like manliness as well as uh, women. We want to protect the woman, the woman, the name of woman, and, you know, instead of the birthing person and all of that, we want to protect the name of mother, mothers. So I also advocate for our women. I don't know whether you're aware. I went to the uh, Posey Parker event to speak, and I didn't get to speak because, as you know, nobody actually got to speak except for those loud people that were out there being horrible and so I advocate for women in girls spaces we should not have biological males going into girls spaces and obviously I've got reason to make sure that we protect children in those spaces um yeah biological you know I advocate but I also believe that you cannot change your sex no your biology says that you know you can do whatever you like as God an adult. God says that. Your chromosomes yeah, say that. Exactly. Helen, you've got males and you've got females. Helen, I have feel truly blessed to have spoken with you this morning and to talk to you. And I know it was painful to talk about your past, and I didn't want to do it for sympathy or for votes, but it sort of, I asked and Rangura, and it happened. But I can't tell you how blessed I feel that you shared with us and our listeners. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of everyone listening that we wish you all the very best for the campaign. And I hope you'll come on again on our show and talk more because get to Parliament or not, you have a lot to contribute to rebuilding this great country of ours. Thank you, Rodney. It's not painful anymore because I know that I'm doing the right thing and I own my past and it's important that people do share their stories and that their voters know who it is that they're voting for. So I really appreciate your time and I appreciate your kindness as well. Oh. Loved being here, loving here and talking about, reminiscing about Rangura. So yes, we'll talk again. Thank you, Rodney. There we go. That's Helen Horton from the New New Conservatives. Remember, you can give me a text at 2057, email me, inbox at reallycheck.radio. Check out those New Conservatives. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check radio app both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. 
you can visit the App Stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, you can send us a text at 2057. Email me at inbox at readilycheck.radio. Well, here's a thing for the etiquette books and the law library, isn't it? Like this whole thing about gendering someone correctly with their pronouns. And we had the case earlier this year where a teacher had a 14-year-old girl transitioning to a boy uh, refused to address her by his name. I'm trying to work that through and use the correct uh, pronoun. Accordingly, left the school and indeed got kicked out for gross misconduct uh, from the teaching profession. Now, to help us through all of this, we have Free Speech Union Chief Executive Officer Jonathan Ailing who is doing wonderful work in trying to preserve free speech, but also not afraid to step into these thorny issues. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Rodney. Well, I'm going to enjoy this because I don't know the answer. Um, But first up, tell me a little bit about the Free Speech Union, a little bit about you, and then we'll get into this particular one. So tell us, first of all, about the Free Speech Union. Well, the Free Speech Union is uh, the largest organization in the country dedicating uh, a lot of work, a lot of service to preserving the right uh, to speak freely for intellectual inquiry, academic freedom in our universities, uh, the role of the fourth estate and and freedom of conscience and belief. And so we believe that societies prosper when people are free. And at the moment, uh, we think that uh, forces within our culture and within our law and international forces as well uh, uh, formulated in such a way that uh, the the rights that we've taken for granted for many many decades in New Zealand uh, is is I was going to say slowly being eroded, but it's actually picking up some pace now. And mm. the fight for freedom uh, of speech does mean at times you have to defend uh, the scoundrel or the scallywag in our midst because you know what what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If I get to express my very erudite and well considered and of course correct positions well yes. we've got to let others put forward their incorrect positions as well i say that facetiously of course because while all of us speak thinking we are right uh how do we know it's because we have a marketplace of ideas we engage with one another hopefully with respect and civility but that's to be honest i don't think we want to make that a precondition i think if if sometimes we want to voice outrage with disrespect at some ideas because they are very disrespectful ideas, we should be allowed to do that as well. But but there is a very bright line when it comes to free speech that we have only ever insisted on, and that is that free speech by no means allows for incitement to violence. 
Violence is, 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 is not simply a bridge too far for free speech. That's not the case at all. Violence is the antithesis of free speech. Free speech is about using reason and relationship and dialogue and discourse to maybe not convince each other, but to at least create a society where we can cohabitate peacefully and non-violently. Uh, violence is about imposing with force on one another uh, the, our ways of thinking. And, and Rodney, I think we need to keep in mind, and I hope your listeners remember this as well, that free speech historically is a, is is the exception, not the rule. Really, in terms of the, the, the breadth of human history, it is the anomaly where societies can live without incredible violence or incredible groupthink. And, it's, uh, quite, and it's, it's quite extraordinary to recall that in the founding of the United States of America, that free speech and freedom of religion was hard fought for. Hard fought for, and the very first of their uh, Bill of Rights. That, yes. that, that it, it is, it, in many ways, it is the foundation on which that republic, but I would say liberal democracy in general, is founded. And and I have a you you asked my background a little bit as well. I think I have a personal uh, insight into this, given, given where I've grown up and the experiences I've had. I, I I grew up where my my parents were humanitarian workers in Mozambique, and so Mozambique was the poorest country in the world when my parents moved there in the late nineties. And it, it had just come out of a absolutely devastating, horrific uh, two decades of civil war. And, and I remember growing up in that space as a very young boy uh, through to when I moved to New Zealand at 18, around people who were intelligent, hardworking, engaged people. But free speech opens people's minds. It, it, it enables us to conceive of ideas and express them that otherwise we would never imagine. And when we shut down free speech, it it, it is just... It, it douses human ingenuity. It douses the the, the most uh, beautiful and innovative parts of humanity. I would say, and and so that's why I I have a, a, a an absolute passion for civil rights and human rights. Uh, but I think both our the civil rights that we take for granted in a liberal democratic society and the human rights framework that we have uh, in our modern era are both founded on the freedom to think and the freedom to express our thoughts freely. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, I've engaged with uh, Paul Hunt, the Chief Human Rights Commissioner, in, in, a, in a wide variety of settings. We, we've, we've done public events together and that kind of thing. And he and I disagree quite strongly on this matter. He thinks that no uh, no human rights, no civil liberty is, is more important than the other. And I say, Paul, that's nonsense. You can't build a framework like this unless you have a foundation. And the foundation is the belief that individuals, not, not groups, not collectives, not identities, but individuals get to decide what they think within themselves and they get to express that. So that's how we, we have a reinforcing, self-reinforcing collection between freedom of conscience and belief and freedom of speech. You cannot have one without the other. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you, what I'd, colloquial call the left have taken over the rights language so wonderfully and made it a right to a house or to a job or to a decent standard of living whereas the original conception for uh, to free everyone from tyranny 
was recognized as being on the basis of the individual. That's right. That you could not have the enlightenment. Yep. You could not have a you could not have a collectivist right. And that your right had to be a duty that would be imposed on everyone else. So if I have a right to life, you have a duty not to kill me. That's now, right. Now, when you say someone has a right to a house, you're then asking and putting the duty upon who? It has to be upon someone. And then, of course, they lose their right to their labor. And so it becomes, when you're talking to Paul Hunt, it becomes an incoherent mess and they resort to a word soup to try and get them through because I, they haven't got the basic foundation that rights have to be individualist. That, that Absolutely right, Rodney, that, that rights are founded on the agency of the individual and the enlightenment was founded on the belief of the dignity and the power and the value of the individual. I, I, I would also, I don't want to get into the technicality of, of human rights law, but, but uh, just briefly, this is what we talk about when we say positive rights versus negative rights. Mm. And, and, and these are very different concepts. Free speech is what's called a negative right. And by, by that, I don't mean it's a bad thing. It's a negative right in that you are free to from from not being stopped speaking you know yes. but you it's, it's not a positive right it's not a positive right you don't you can't demand other people listen to you no. um and so it's, you, you can't demand other people other people give you a house you can't demand other people provide you but but you you can demand that they don't kill you that you can mm -hmm. demand that they don't um stop you from worshiping in certain ways and so these are the, the distinctions between positive and negative rights and when when the modern human rights frameworks began to emerge uh they emerged primarily as negative rights and since then they've taken on a life of their own which i think has bred some um discontent and resentment among uh, rational thinking people because they see that there's abuse occurring here and 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 the free speech union is very careful we do not take uh positions on the substance of matters we are not politically aligned in any way we have a wide variety of individuals from the left and the right from progressives and conservatives at our table uh but but we work that everyone has the freedom to not be silenced because of how provocative or seemingly uh, unconventional their thoughts are. We get to this position on free speech of the incitement to violence. And of course, on that proviso hangs a whole multitude of degrees. And I had forgotten the argument in favor of free speech because I never felt the need to resort <laughs> to the argument, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I went back and I read uh, John Stuart Mill, his famous chapter on free speech on, and on liberty, which is, I think, where we all go. Um, Certainly in the uh, in the West, that's where we go. Yeah. Uh, Jacob Inshangama is a free speech historian, and he shows that free speech has emerged in many cultures across oh, the world. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. and, and, and so you look at um, the Indian Raj or the the Arab caliphs or, or d d different cultures across across millennium, really, that have all resorted to this perennially radical idea that people should be free to speak freely. And you look at what happened in the Indian subcontinent at that point or in the Middle East and in, in what when Europe was in the Dark Ages. And, uh, and you see that free speech brings prosperity. It brings stability. But you're absolutely right. In Europe and in the West, we go to John Stuart Mills largely for, for yes. our foundation on free speech. I had not appreciated that other cultures and other times 
had established free speech. But now that you mention about it, you couldn't have had the flowering of science, maths, technology, uh, freedom without it. It had to be the basis of those um, civilizations, and including, of course, the Greeks uh, and the Romans. Of course, that's right. Um, So it is a wonderful thought that I'm so, what's that word, Uh, Eurocentric or Western-centric, that it just occurred to me, um, that's a wonderful point. You've you've really opened my eyes to that. It's it's an important one that that uh, I take pleasure in reminding people because of course one of the uh, accusations that we face is oh only only straight white privileged men care about free speech because yes. really free speech is a is a club to beat down the marginalised and the vulnerable and on the contrary my dedication to free speech is because no one benefits more from free speech than the vulnerable. And the you know, I, I was presenting uh, to the police leadership forum uh, two weeks ago, the, the top 40 cops in the country. And we were we had about an hour discussion on on free speech. I was there uh, especially to discuss the Posey Parker affair with them and concerns we had about police engagement. But this was an important part that that we wanted to really focus in on is is that it, let, let's for a moment accept the assumptions that maybe the woke would uh would put out that as a straight white wealthy man i i have um innate privilege that insulates me from the hardships of life accepting for a moment that that is true and i think some of your listeners would have a strong contestation with that uh isn't that an argument for free speech because then if if we if we put through hate speech laws or if we put through other legal means that erode free speech I, it's okay. I'm a straight, white, wealthy man. Yes, I've got course. power. I don't need free speech. No. I could just bang my fist on the table. It's the ones that don't have power. It's the ones that don't have privilege that are really upheld by this belief that everyone should be able to speak freely. If we start to strike at the cultural cornerstone that, that, that at the moment says everyone should be allowed to speak freely, if we strike away at that, it is the vulnerable at the moment. We might imagine it's a it's a, it's a moldy lesbian woman, you know? Uh, she's the one who, according to that narrative, doesn't have power, doesn't have privilege, and so she will be the one that suffers. And so I think we need to, uh, it's interesting you say you had, had to put forward the argument for free speech in some time. And I think New Zealand, we recently conducted polling. It showed that uh, 55% of Kiwis have heard of the work of the free speech union. A majority of them support it. Uh, and, and 75% of Kiwis think that free speech is a cultural cornerstone, a, a value that is embedded in who we are as Kiwis. But a majority also thought it was under threat. And so that's why, Rodney, we need to get better at making this case again, oh, yes. reminding people why we believe in this. If we, I want to pick up on two points, and it's just the margin. It's this um, incitement to violence. And just to think ahead, it's this, for want of a better word, postmodernist idea that speech itself is violent and inherent, and inherently oppressive. And it's, you know, people like yourself and me are oppressing people through our speech just by virtually of having this conversation. But if we go back to John Stuart Mill's originally original formulation, he drew the line like a good uh, libertarian would, uh, that you can wave your hand around until it hits someone on the nose, and you can speak freely until it effectively hits someone on the nose. 
But he was very careful. Correct me if I've got this wrong, because I believe this was him. That I could stand up in a hall and say, these rich capitalists should have their houses burnt down and they all be hung. Because that's not directly inciting violence on a particular person. The argument had to be much closer proximally to the violence, which is to say, I've got a bloodthirsty mob who are outside your house screaming, and I stand up there and say, let's lynch Jonathan, because he is a rich capitalist robbing us blind, and we all, the mob pours through the door and lynch you, or I get arrested before that happens, and I am guilty of incitement to violence. So his conception of incitement to violence wasn't just you can never do it, but it had to be, what's the word I'm looking for? It had to be proximal. It had to be like a, 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 an immediate thing because he recognized that otherwise you haven't got free speech. That, that, that's right. And, and and John Stuart Mills was writing from a philosophical perspective. Yes. And in and, and, and free speech, we're, we're constantly working between the philosophy of free speech. So that's the, you know, those of us that are paid to kick our feet back sometimes and, and think for a day, but but also the, the legal aspect of it. And, and those two are, are associated, but not the same. That perspective has also been confirmed in the jurisprudence that has comes out comes out of the Supreme Court uh, in the United States, where there, there are a, a, a criteria. There's a test for what incitement to violence really means, and and you're absolutely right, Rodney. It relates to uh, both the immediacy or the proximity to to actually uh, in that moment being able to achieve that uh, violence, and a direct connection between those words and the actions you take or someone else takes, uh, and. and and also the capacity to, uh, to 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 outwork that violence, and and this is why. And and I don't know if you will agree. Certainly, I don't think some of your listeners will agree. At the Free Speech Union, we were not popular for arguing this earlier in the year. But you will recall the Tusiata Avia poem that mm-hmm. that uh, came around. It was about six months ago uh, now, I think. And and uh, uh, others uh, out there, the likes of Sean Plunkett, were, were very concerned by this poem. And, and even some supporters and donors of the Free Speech Union said, this is incitement to violence. No. And we said, nonsense. Mm. Uh, I, 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 I started to listen to it, and I found it despicable i found it disgusting i didn't finish listening to the the relatively short poem because i found it to be um really horrible ideas and that's the thing free speech allows you to express really horrible ideas but there's this notion that in reality tusiata avia's poem was going to result in maori women driving around the country running (laughs) over white men what was exactly laughable uh and 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 I think we need to be careful because it's our opponents who don't like free speech, who are constantly trying to overburden this notion of violence. We mustn't fall into the same trap. Well, the thing is, it may well lead to that, but that's not a reason to give up on free speech. And, of course, there's plenty of times when um, a call to arms, uh, even from the citizenry, historically, 
has been necessary and justified um, over and over again. And so you're absolutely right. We have to be um, careful. And the thing is about free speech is it doesn't help if you drive it underground. That's right. And it's far, far better to have it out in the open for everyone to see and for it to be mocked and ridiculed than make it sort of attractive to young and influential minds by making it somehow illicit. Mm-hmm. Um, also, too, the beautiful thing about free speech is it tells you about people. So we learned a lot about that poet, mm-hmm. didn't we? You know, we we, right. we 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 learned what we thought of her and her ideas by allowing her the freedom to express herself. Um, I'm amazed how much I have, just on the basis of politeness, uh, inhibited my speech in company compared to where I was 20, 30 years ago. And I can remember, you know, you'd sit around a university common room and you'd just, we used, used to have that phrase, shoot the shit, right? And you'd, people would come up with the craziest ideas, same in politics, you'd be shooting the shit and no one would be held to account for what they said. And you'd say, no, 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 that's stupid. But you had this, utter freedom to express the first thought in your head without ever being held to account for it because you are having this free flow of ideas. No no, no one would be declared stupid for coming up with a stupid idea. It was part of that free ranging. And it's so wonderful. I don't believe that happens any longer because Everywhere you go, you are checking yourself. Now, this isn't a legal thing. This is just, you know, you're you're not wanting to offend. And as soon as you find yourself in that place where you can't say something crazy about religion or crazy about, you know, tell a joke um, um, without offending someone, I mean, it's just, we had a clear view that if you took offense, the problem was you, not the person who said it. And, and and this is this is an incredible shift that has occurred over the past generation or two, and so uh, part of me aspires to how, how wonderful and liberated does that sound, and and yet I also I'm I'm glad our society as a whole doesn't function on that way, and 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 this is where and and I don't want to talk out of both sides of my mouth in this moment, but but this is where I I, I dedicate my life to defending individuals' rights to freedom, even those I disagree with. Often I spend an enormous amount of effort and time defending those whose speech I fundamentally oppose. That being said, just because I absolutely believe in the right to freedom doesn't mean I think we should always exercise that right. Now, the, the individual should be the one at their discretion to use to choose when or not to use that freedom it is not the role of the state to say and in this context you can speak freely and in this context you can't neither the state or nor the academia nor nor culture nor media it is the role of the individual to to try and create a structure in our lives that help us understand when i'm sitting at the pub with my mate and having a few beers you have a little a little bit more social latitude to to operate within than mm. when I am with with my grandma or in, in company that I don't know or individuals who are perhaps more inclined to take offense. Uh, I, I agree, offense is taken, not given. Mm. But that being said, 
we should operate understanding who is more likely to take offense and and take that into account at sometimes self-censorship is a major issue in our culture and 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 in the anglosphere and across the west largely but that being said i don't want to advocate that we should never self-censor uh and 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 this 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 may or may not sit well with with uh some of those that are listening in the conversation but i think without a moral framework without a value framework that we la- we we increasingly despise and uh and and denigrate uh we, we don't have a way to as a whole as a society operate with a common set of values that tells us in what context student behavior might be acceptable or unacceptable and and i think the, the, uh, you mentioned postmodernism earlier postmodernism thank you michelle foucault uh has 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 led to this relativistic perspective this post-truth environment and I think that is at the root of much of the polarization, much of the um, the uh, lack of social cohesion that is emerging. We have lost the Absolutely. ability for us to hold the common value structure. And with that, how do we talk to each other anymore? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I'm always in favor of etiquette and good manners. And that means being aware. By the way, I was reflecting on... You're too young, but listeners will remember this. There used to be a wonderful thing called the public bar in a New Zealand pub. And it was basically not for women. So men would go there after work, and it was all men in their working clothes. And the funny thing is, I've always enjoyed women's company more than men's. But I used to love going into the men's bar with men after work and drinking. What a raucous, <laughs> mad place it was. The air would be blue. There might be the odd scuffle. Um, it was huge fun. And there wasn't a woman to be seen. And this, of course, was seen to be sexist, to exclude women. And looking back on it, it just served this wonderful social function because actually it was respectful of women, right? Because men wouldn't behave like that if there was a woman present. And the men let off steam and everyone had a good time and the ladies remained ladies. And at the start of this whole postmodernist movement, those men's spaces had to be banned, just like now we're sort of doing away with women's spaces. And it was sort of toxic masculinity. But I look back to it and I think that was actually a wonderful institution for men to be men and 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 um and to respect women. Um, and that was your point about being mindful of the space because the air would turn blue. But when you moved into the family part or the female part, everyone was just so polite. And I love that stuff. You know, it was just so liberating. Now, 
couple of things. Rodney, th- th- you're you're underpinning a uh, a perspective of an age gone by, and and you're right. Uh, my my generation can't relate to that, so I'll I'll I'll, I'll take your recount of it at face value. Uh, what you're referencing though is is a, there is a very binary view of the world of men and women, right? And 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 we as a, as a society, and certainly in my generation, we are increasingly rejecting that. And I'll leave that up to others to decide whether that's right or, well, or not. Well, we're coming into that right now, aren't we? That, that, that's right. And and and, and this is, uh, we'll, I'll reference a, a petition that the free speech is running here. Can I uh, bring you into this just, just before you do that? I want to explain me because, um, and then you can come to this free speech. So when I was in parliament, I would meet transvestites on a regular basis. And I knew Georgina Bayer to begin with not well, but later on very, very well, um, because we used to do charity dances together. And I'm always respectful of the individual. So if she wanted to be called Georgina, I would happily call her Georgina and did so. If she wanted to be called Miss Georgina Bayer, I would have done so. I don't recall ever having to do that. I just called her Georgina. But now this issue has become front and center of the cultural war or wars, and you're feeling obligated to take a position over and over and over again and to think much more deeply about it and to realize that you're being confronted and ideologically pigeonholed to play a certain way because of etiquette and manners. So here we come to the case. Let's say this nowadays. I'm a teacher. I have a 14-year-old girl in my class who decides she wants to be a boy. Now, 20 years ago, I would have gone along with it. Not now, because I'd say someone needs to tell this young girl she can't. Now, where is this on the free speech spectrum? Because in a funny way, I own my name. I own my how I want to be addressed. But given your point, I can't demand that you use my name. However, we're in an institution, it might be a, 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 a government department, it might be a, a commercial business, it might be a school. 14-year-old girl wants to have a boy's name and be addressed as a boy. How do you address that? And what are you doing about that? Because this is what we have you on for. Rodney, this is a very complex issue, and uh, our, our opponents have been very quick to lambast us effectively as neo-Nazis for daring to take a position that isn't, in every case, in every moment, a child who wants to be referred to by another pronoun should have their wishes entirely uh, accepted. Forgive me, I think it's slightly more complex than that. 
and I, but, but, but I don't want to pretend it's a simplistic, anyone should be free to say anything, anytime, anywhere type thing either. So, so forgive me as I work through this. I don't want Please. to be milly mouthed, but I want your listeners to Jacob and Shangama, again, the, the Danish free speech historian who's done incredible work uh, recently advocating globally for sp free speech says that free speech presupposes listening. You, 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 you cannot simply impose silence and call it tolerance and and so that's that's where um your, your listeners may uh, undoubtedly will have very strong opinions on the subject good on them they have every right to hold those but hopefully we can listen to the other side as well and 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 our team has reflected very long on this issue you uh, as you referenced uh, it was several months ago now that the the t teacher was first deregistered by the teaching council for refusing to use the preferred pronouns of the student students and that that prompted a lot of debate in our team and we've spent some time deciding how to respond to that and and ultimately we've we've come to the position that uh bu bureaucrats and activists at a national level should not be deciding how teachers refer to students because that is it's, it's entirely devoid of context and of the nuance and of the sensitivity of the question at play and and when when we're dealing especially with with teenagers in high school a lot of things are very sensitive um but especially as it comes to identities where these people on on questions of gender sure but but on a question of a host of other issues as well they're deciding who they're going to be in life they're deciding where they're going to go and let's not pretend i think it's 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 childish to pretend that that teenagers always know the answer straight away or they always get it right. Often they try something on and then they might do something else. And, and again, uh, uh, perhaps that's gender, but I mean on a no number of other things as well. Uh, we decide what, what friend groups we want to be part of. We decide what subjects we're interested in. We decide w which directions we want to pursue in life. And, and I want our young people to have the freedom to, to, to consider something and then decide actually maybe not. And so there needs to be give and take in that. And, and, Parents, especially our strong, our society needs strong parents engaged in their children's lives. That is primary. But then their teachers and their principal uh, are those that are best placed to navigate that with them and 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 decide where they, you know with them where they're going. It's not the role of uh, Leslie Hoskin at the, at the chief executive of the of the of the teaching council or bureaucrats there or activists that are trying to push put pressure on the teaching council like inside out to say every teacher must refer to every student who wants to be called non by by, by non-biological pronouns whenever they wish. I, I would say that it is a question of compelled speech as well. And you're, Rodney, you're right. We, we've come to say an individual has a right to be called by the name. You know, we choose the name that we want. And, and I can't really imagine situations where there's, there's a, a strong argument to not use the name someone would want. Mm. Not least because of what you said already about being polite and, and courtesy. Um, and, 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 and also, we already accept that within society that that my name is Jonathan. A lot of people call me Johnny. Um, my 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 name in Kenya was Kamal. So I mean, it doesn't matter if now I introduce myself as Kamal. But 
but what what is interesting, Rodney, with the whole preferred pronoun thing? And, and you know what? As we've discussed this with our supporters, a lot of a lot of people don't actually know what we're talking about because they're, they're not encountering this. So so what I mean by that is we we you, you've addressed it already. Where a where a fourteen year old individual who's biologically a female goes, I identify as 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 a boy now. I want to be called he him. Uh, so these are the preferred pronouns. They, they may look like a girl, they may not, but they are biologically a girl, and they want to be referred to as a boy what's interesting about pronouns and i don't want to i i i've i've studied six languages i find languages fascinating i love considering how people communicate so uh but but i won't try and get into the gr grammatical nerdiness of this but the thing about pronouns is they're third person pronouns so so I is first person pronoun. You is first second person pronoun, and and neither of those are gendered in any way. Mm. It's only once we get to third person pronouns when when Rodney and Jonathan are talking about Sam that we start we start to use he or she, and so this isn't really a question of how the students will be referred to to their face. It's oh, always good point. A, mm. It's a question of how they're referred to when they're not there. Mm. When, when it, or, or maybe they are there, but someone's not talking directly to them. They're talking about them. So it's the definition of compelled speech. It is saying I am she, her, even though biologically I am he, him. And a lot of a lot of teachers from across the ideological perspective. Now, our, again, our opponents would try and lump them all as neo-Nazi transphobes who are trying to commit genocide. That this is just it's well, it, it would be laughable if it wasn't so egregious. We represent people from across the political spectrum. And again, conservatives, progressives, a, a host of different uh, perspectives that agree that we need to have a more fulsome conversation around transgenderism and the language that relates to transgenderism. And so we, we, we are suggesting that uh, in a school, if, if a principal and a teacher want to create a standard where they will require the use of preferred pronouns. There's a space for representation there. A teacher may disagree with that, but they can they can talk with the board of trustees. They can talk with the principal. These will be people that they have relationship with. There's a way to navigate that. And at the end of the day, if a majority of teachers and a principal decide that preferred pronouns should be used or shouldn't be used and other teachers disagree, they could go to a different school. What is at stake with the teaching council getting involved with the threat of deregistration, which is what a lot of activists want to be the cost, is that if, like with this teacher, if you refuse to use the preferred pronoun in one situation with one student in one school, you may never be allowed to teach anywhere ever again. And that's what's happened to this teacher who was deregistered. Look, we had concerns around the way the teacher in question two months ago conducted himself. We think he could have done it a lot more constructively with, with, with consideration to where others were coming from, and he would have helped his case and ours. But that being said, the decision to deregister him was simply punitive. It I was think it was gross, gross misconduct, wasn't it? Well, that, that's what they say it was, yes. Mm. And, and so they deregistered him on, on account of that. And it, it'll always be wording like that because it comes down to breaking the code. Mm. 
The code mm. of conduct that, that requires you to be respectful and treat treat students with you know with safety. Um, th- these are important terms, but they are ambiguous. They are they are vague, and so then uh, the 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 council and the, the tribunal that reviewed his case decided that he had breached the code for gross misconduct, but it was because of the way he conducted himself before the tribunal when he refused to use these preferred pronouns, and he could have got he had already resigned from the school in question. He could have gone to another school, perhaps a special character school, where they choose not to use preferred pronouns. What this has done, though, is set a precedent and embolden those who go every teacher in every classroom should call every student who wants to be referred to by a preferred pronoun as the preferred pronoun that they wish to be called by. And that is simply an incorrect standard that threatens to force some teachers to choose between an ideological political position and engaging in the profession that they have trained for. And look, Rodney, in a a, a society where we don't have teachers to be casting out, we with class size and and the the situation that our education system is in, is this really the issue we want to be fighting on? Is this really the issue we want to be expelling teachers on? And it's, it's prompted a conversation at the FSU about these professional oversight bodies that exist. So teachers have the teaching council. Of course, your listeners may be familiar. We're representing several uh, medical professionals at the moment who have been deregistered or, or are threatened with deregistration by the nursing council, for example. Lawyers have the law society. There are these professional oversight bodies that are increasingly captured by would-be censors who want to weaponize codes of conduct to silence their opponents on ideological or political issues. And we are simply saying, let we'll let others decide uh, the, the, the veracity of the response to COVID or the response to transgenderism. But don't you dare try and shut down the debate. Because keeping it local to the people that are directly involved always allows compromise. That's right. And so if you force it or allow it, that's a better way of saying it, if you allow it to occur with the principal, with the board, with the parents, with the teacher, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, 999 times out of 1,000, you will give a little bit and you'll reach a satisfactory position. Why? Because you know each other and you're talking. It's facilitated by relationship. Yes. And, and and as soon as we we resort to abstractions of mm. this this distant institution that is the teaching council that's overseeing this this teacher who has an identity number and they don't really yes. know who it is. All we have to do is resort to our ideological positions. But when you're sitting across from your principal who who hired you five years ago and supported you through a rough spat in your marriage or, or whatever it is, you've got some give and take. And, and if we want social cohesion in our society, relationship is what will get us there. Give and take is what will get us there. And that gets us to your petition. So please tell us about your petition. Well, we're calling on the teaching council to maintain discretion for teachers and principals in schools. And and what this may mean is there are some schools who say if your child comes here and they want to be referred to by a preferred pronoun, we absolutely will do that. 
And in other cases, they may say in certain classrooms or certain teachers, we will not. But that's because there will be compromise, there will be dialogue, there will be give and take. And, and I encourage those who think that we are being transphobes and, and, and that this will only go away and it will only result in students not being referred to by their preferred pronouns, which is which is in reality to say students not being allowed to express themselves and who they truly fully are. I encourage them to think and put the shoe on the other foot because because th those who are, who uh, disagree with preferred pronouns may see oh, the Green Party could get into government and say every school must use preferred, pro preferred pronouns and mandate it through the teaching council. But what happens if New Zealand First gets into government mm. and New Zealand First says no schools should be allowed to use preferred mm. pronouns, only biological pronouns will be used? That would be just as much a free speech issue for us as well. If, if a teacher and a principal and a student decide that a non-biological pronoun is the correct one to use, then they should be free to do that with, with, with parents involved as well. But, but what, what we are saying is stop with the ideology. Come, come down to a local level where dialogue and free speech and exchange can occur. And so for those that think we are just being transphobes, just wait until the shoe's on the other foot. And this is this is what we say at every point with censorship. You you like the idea of hate speech laws? Well, maybe at the moment while you get to write them, but just wait until you've chopped down this cultural value of free speech and some and a and a Trumpian populist comes in and gets to rewrite those laws. How do you think it's gonna fly then? And so that's why we've got this petition running. Your listeners can uh can go to fsu.nz and in our top bar there, there's an option to click on preferred pronouns petition. Fsu.nz is our website. You can click on preferred pronouns petition and sign us uh, sign our petition where with that of over 5,000 Kiwis in, in the first 24 hours signed our petition call from from a variety of perspectives calling on the teaching council to let teachers and principals decide and, and at, at the basic level we believe that teachers and principals in concert with parents know how to treat students better than activists and bureaucrats lobbying the teaching council. And so we we say let people be free to know what to say. I, uh, you're on Rally Tech Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to the wonderful Jonathan Ayling from the Free Speech Union. We're talking about, I guess, let civil society operate to solve vexed issues rather than have a central dictate uh, emanating out of uh, Wellington, which means uh, oftentimes these days emanating out of the loudest voice in in the room. The other thing that you draw our attention to, which can be readily forgotten in all of this, Jonathan, is how free speech is not just inexplicably tied in with the rights of the individual, but the rights to the individual of private property. Because free speech is always taking place somewhere, right? And you and I, and this can be forgotten, can't it? Because this is the nature of a school or my house. So in my house, I can be the little totalitarian, can't I? That 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 is correct. So in my house, I can decide that there will be no blasphemy or bad language, I can decide that um, no one will speak ill you, of Jacinda Ardern. 
you, you, you are right, Rodney. But again, I want to draw us back to where we were uh, at the beginning of this interview, the, the, the difference between the philosophical conception of free speech and the legal conception of free speech. Yes. So certainly what you're referring to there is the legal conception of free speech, that that, that you have the legal rights to, uh, to prohibit blasphemy or, or or even to compel at the beginning of dinner everyone to say you know uh, all, all hail the leader but i would i would say reflect on the philosophical aspect of free speech as well you may have the legal right that is guaranteed by private property law to do that but but if you want to prohibit your uh, your children from blasphemy and and you threaten them with incredible punishment if they do the philosophical concept around that is you may find that free speech, the, the arguments for free speech still come into play and you're suppressing a speech that that may actually express itself even more because you're suppressing it. And of that course. the arguments of free speech, rather than stopping it with punishment, maybe go, well, this is why I don't blaspheme. Well, these are the values and you have a dialogue and you have exchange. So you're absolutely right. Private property guarantees you a legal right, uh, but the 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 idea related to free speech still comes into play and but this is this is an interesting point is it not because <clears throat> you presumably wouldn't defend someone an atheist walking into a church and blaspheming and say well he is perfectly entitled to do that because he has a right to free speech, because he doesn't have a right to the platform. Um, that, that, that is correct. Uh, and, and again, this is the interchange between legality and philosophy. We, we would say he doesn't have the legal right to do that. So if, if the church then asked security... Yes, I've got your him, difference. That's his I've right. But, but but we would say to the church, is is really is punishing people or an extreme burning them on the stake for blasphemy an effective way to do it? Well, I would say history would suggest no. Yeah. And, of course, um, being good Christians... Uh, we welcome the prodigal son and would show him love. Now, I've been talking with Jonathan Ayling. Uh, keep up the good work, Jonathan. Uh, I have signed your petition last night. Thank you for the opportunity. We wish you well in your work. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's been real talk with Rodney Hyde and talking with Jonathan Ayling from the Free Speech Union. Oh, my goodness, to think that here in New Zealand we'd need a free speech union. But that's where we are. Thanks for text 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? 
Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Um, One of the things I've been big at uh, with my family is sitting around the dinner table and eating a meal all together, cooking something nice each night, something healthy each night, and sitting around and talking about our days and reflecting on the day. And at times, I have used the opportunity that we take turns at giving thanks, Uh, kids giving thanks for the food and for the day, but it seemed a bit empty. And now with uh, listeners, many listeners' help and some listeners' scorn, I have become a Christian, and we now say grace. Oh, my goodness, it's so wonderful. Because before we eat, we all hold hands and we just give thanks. And in the past, it wasn't clear who you were giving thanks to, but now it is. We give thanks to the Lord. For everything that we have and are blessed with. And I now think about that a lot because how often do we get to stop and give thanks and feel blessed with what we have because read the newspaper, listen to the news, listen to people whine and talk. Everyone seems concerned with what they haven't got or we haven't got here in New Zealand or what's wrong what's not working. And yes, I get that, because you have to talk about what's not working and what's wrong in order to fix it. But man, it changes your outlook just to stop and give thanks as a family, to hold hands and give thanks to the Lord for everything that we've been blessed with. It's a fabulous time of the day, and it sets you up psychologically and spiritually to feel blessed. And it's funny how it works on your mind. I remember in one particular election campaign being very down in the dumps and people would ask casually like they do how you are. And you sort of look at them and you think, do you really want to know? Because I'm pretty down. And I thought, I just can't do that. So I just started to say that I've never been better. And as I said it over and over and over through the day, I actually did feel never better. And it was that idea of how you, what you say with your words uh, becomes how you feel and who you are. So by saying I was never better, it was sort of like an affirming thing. Yeah, I was never better, even though I had a lot of rubbish going on at the time. And so it is with grace. You say grace, 
you count your blessings and you feel blessed and you go through your day feeling blessed. You go to bed that night feeling blessed and you wake up in the morning feeling blessed and you have a day feeling blessed. It's a much better way of living and feeling good about things. And I notice it with the kids because they say grace. It's their turn to say grace and they count their blessings. That they got a mum and a dad that love them, that they got food on their table and a roof over their head. Just the little things you can so readily take for granted. Count your blessings. We are so lucky to be alive at this time and this part of the world because we've got so much to be blessed about. You with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio, please send us a text 2057, email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Here on Radley Check Radio, it's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for coming along. Thank you for listening. What a wonderful show we've had. What wonderful guests. Helen Horton, oh man, she impressed me enormously. She's the leader of the New Conservative Party. What a story of her life. I just can't imagine it. I was, you would have heard moved to tears actually about this poor 14-year-old girl literally growing up on the streets and abused as a child, abused as a mother and wife, and escaping all of that to become a teacher, and then to study to be a lawyer, and to raise two fine boys, and then to offer yourself up to Parliament as a leader of the Conservative Party, because family is everything, and how true that is. Well. I'd love to see her in Parliament. I just think we need real people there. And she's a real person, not some cardboard cutout or robot or someone who's trying to be what they think we need rather than who they are. And I enjoyed Jonathan Ailing. I always do very much. He's a very, very smart and articulate man. And he guided us through how we can deal with this issue of Sue in the classroom wanting to be called Sam. Um, so tough, so difficult. And yet it's a real issue now, uh, up and down classrooms in New Zealand. Believe me, we're not making that up. You've been on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Radley Check Radio. Please send me a text at 2057. Email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. Always a pleasure to be with you, to be in your place of work, to be out in a run. To be in your home and to have you listen in and be part of our community, thank you for listening.